Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. My recovery journey so far has involved navigating the waters of some serious, shameful, and angry feelings. For the longest time, I didn't want to feel those feelings. I knew they were there, but they hurt too much, so I pushed them down. It took someone I loved very much coming to me and telling me they felt emotionally abused by my behavior to wake me up. I hated myself for a long time after reflecting on all the things that I'd done, on the defense mechanisms and coping strategies that I realized had destroyed a lot of my life and my relationships. But as I learned more and more about psychology and went deeper and deeper into my recovery journey, I realized that these behaviors were unconscious. I wasn't aware of what I was doing. I was just on autopilot, an emotional wrecking ball crashing through my life and the people along the way. If you relate to what I'm saying, this episode is for you. What you're about to hear is part one of two episodes where I sit down with licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Jace Long. Jace has training in contemporary psychodynamic individual and group treatment, as well as DBT skills and mindfulness-based existential approaches. During this first part of our interview, we go deep into understanding the unconscious and how our unconscious minds keep us stuck in recurring defense mechanisms and coping strategies that we learn to protect ourselves in childhood. We also talk about why it's about damn time we stop labeling feelings as good, bad, positive, or negative. Feelings just are. They're part of being human, and there's nothing wrong with you for having them. We touch on arrested development, how we can recognize in ourselves the signs that we may be stuck in a semi-childlike state that's preventing us from enjoying the full human experience. We tie things up with a deep conversation about needs and how I found that I had no idea what the hell my needs even were and why Jay said this is a common thing that he hears from many of his patients and how a deep disconnection with our needs starts in childhood. I hope you get as much from listening to Jace's perspective as I have. And as usual, links to follow Jace and all of the topics we cover are linked in the show notes. So with that, let's dive into my conversation with psychologist Dr. Jace Long. All this 
you have entered back from the borderline where we walk willingly into the darkness within our minds and return home to ourselves transformed. I'm your host, Molly. I spent most of my life numbing the pain and emptiness inside me, unaware that my self-sabotaging behaviors and thoughts were destroying my ability to connect with myself and other people. One day, I decided I was sick enough of my own bullshit to hear life calling, telling me it was time for a change, and I decided to answer that call. On this podcast, We'll learn that when we see ourselves as the hero of our own journey, it gives us the best chance at finding our inner truth and integrity. Together, we'll learn to hold complex feelings, expand our consciousness and self-awareness while making meaning of our suffering. Are you ready to find out who you are underneath the weight of everything that's been keeping you stuck? If the answer is yes, follow me down the rabbit hole of psychological and spiritual growth. I'm so glad you're here. And with that, let's dive straight in to the episode. I'm going to let my guest introduce himself and his credentials, um, and then we can just dive right in. Thanks, Molly. Um, I'm Dr. Jay Swong. Um, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist um, out of the state of California. Um, I would consider myself a psychodynamic um, psychologist um, in the contemporary sense, which maybe we'll talk about later. Um, I work primarily uh, in a group practice. Um, I see a lot of individuals of various ages, from 18 up until the 80s. Um, And then I also work part-time for a place called a uh, PCH treatment center, which does a lot of like IOP and PHP kind of re- more residential type treatment and lead groups there. Um, yeah, that's, that's me in a nutshell. Great. Well, for the listeners, I found Jace and his work um, on Twitter, I think is where I actually found you first. Um, okay. I feel like Twitter is so well suited to the way you share. Cause you're like me where you share like long blocks of text, like I have a hard time being um, concise with my shares, but I like, I loved everything that you, you chose to share there. And then of course I found you on Instagram. You're so underrated on Instagram. Like I feel like your, your stuff just, I'm excited for my listeners to go in. I'm going to link to his Instagram in the show notes. It's dare being with, and I will uh, provide a link there, but you really could get lost for a couple hours in, in the shares there. And they're really, what stood out to me, Jace, was you share like hard truths. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think what I perceive to be kind of hard truths. And for me, I like, I've said multiple times in the podcast that huge moments of um, aha moments in my recovery have been when I've had to hear kind of like the raw unadulterated truth and a lot of uh, about kind of the ways that my behaviors were keeping me stuck and how I was kind of stuck in my perpetual childhood state and projecting all of those things onto the people around me, which is a hard thing to come to terms with. (laughs) So Mike, I know that's, uh, I will now leave over to you to do most of the talking here, but that's just kind of like what stuck out, stuck out to me with a lot of your shares. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about 
what a psychodynamic approach looks like. I know that it's like a huge, it's like, please tell us in two minutes about Freud and his entire, (laughs) but maybe like a a shorter version of what psychodynamic approach is and what the goals are in psychodynamic therapy. Yeah. Okay. What still feels like a big question. So I'll do my to (laughs) represent. Um, I I would say maybe a bit of a caveat here. I think when people hear the word psychodynamic, a lot of times they immediately jump to Freud or they don't know what what it means. Um, The field has really grown a lot over, I mean, we're talking over a century at this point, over a hundred years. And I think um, a lot of, there's a lot of misconceptions, misrepresentations. um, And I think a lot of it actually starts in like undergrad um, where you see um, kind of developmental textbooks or something that give just like a very brief ode to Freud, like his psychosexual stages. Um, And so um, a lot's happened since then. Um, And if I were to kind of pare it down, um, it's a, a relational model that assumes that there are things that are happening outside of your awareness. Um, Oftentimes these are affective, emotional driven, uh, relational patterns that are in some ways you could say pre-verbal in the sense that they happen outside of our awareness and outside of our ability to um, describe them verbally unless we're able to reflect in a relationship on those patterns that we are enacting. And so a contemporary psychodynamic approach would really focus on how those patterns of dealing with emotions and dealing with relationships that that trigger up certain emotions play out in your current relationships. And a a lot of times I would say in the therapy relationship, which uh, I would really want to emphasize, which I think can be um, a, one of those hard truths of like, um, the attachment system, as Montague would say, gets activated and there's these intense emotions and what happens in the therapy relationship, because that's where often the emotions are the most alive, we could say. That's that's a great breakdown. I, I also, I'd only brought up Freud because I know that's what everyone automatically thinks when they, when they hear psychodynamic yeah. therapy. And you also automatically think about like laying on a chaise lounge and like just being like, so how do you feel about that? And then it all comes down to like wanting to like bang your mom or something like we, yeah. we've, we've come a long way since then. And what I love about uh, the psychodynamic approach myself is the focus on the unconscious, right? Mm-hmm. And um, about how much the unconscious and what we're not aware of drives our waking behaviors. Mm-hmm. What? How would you describe to someone who is not a psychology nerd like me, <laughs> like? I remember when I, a couple of years ago, when I just started diving into all of this stuff and making it my mission to recover the concept of like the unconscious, I had no idea what that even was really. When I heard unconscious, I just think of like being knocked out, right? Where you're not awake. But can you describe for a really entry level listener, like what is the unconscious and um, how does it impact our behaviors? Obviously another massive question, but (laughs) <laughs> do, do, do your worst <laughs> what is the, the unconscious um maybe to, we could use an analogy here that might resonate with um people listening um 
and this is actually uh, the unconscious, right? It, it used to be kind of this thing that people were theorizing about, um, kind of based on observation, um, a lot of attributing certain thoughts and feelings to infants and to people kind of hindsight. There's been a lot of research in kind of cognitive psychology around um, what they call procedural knowledge. Um, this idea of like how you would learn to ride a bike. Um, I think it's a good analogy. And then you could apply it to relationships and the unconscious and how that plays out in relationships. But you tend to not learn how to ride a bike by reading an instruction manual um, or, you know, kind of a list of things you should do. Now, that may help kind of orient you to the experience of riding a bike. But when you learn to ride a bike, it's, it can be hard if, uh, to describe unconsciously, how do I know how to do this? What's going on, right? And then people will describe these things, these experiences of driving in a car and, and not realizing, how did I get here, right? Like they kind of were wandering off and doing most of it unconsciously, procedurally. Um, and so we do that in relationships as well. We are operating kind of behind the scenes in our intentions, what we want, th those things aren't always known to us, right? Our desires, our intentions, our motivations. There's a lot of that that is, it's not like, um, and I think this is more of a contemporary view. It's not that we're like necessarily repressing it, pushing it down. It's a lot of it that it's just never been in an awareness. It's just kind of operating in a more procedural, unconscious. We have these kind of tendencies, these patterns. A lot of times they developed early on with our primary relationships. And then we find ourselves acting this way. Why am I anticipating this person's going to hurt me? I, I don't even know this person. Um, and so those, it's these kind of hidden intentions, desires that play out in relationships. And we, and we find ourselves wondering why we're, we find ourselves in a similar pattern. Um, so. That's such a fantastic and uh, short version explanation. Cause again, like God, it's like the unconscious. It's like when you see those um, models of like the iceberg where it's like, this wow. is the consciousness. And then the unconscious is like everything under the iceberg. So yeah. to even give like a one minute and 30 explanation of like the biggest fucking part of our entire thing. <laughs> pretty good i guess i could have said there's just a lot going down you know and <laughs> there's, there's a lot there's a lot it's a lot yeah um seriously thank you for that and i think that that for me understanding that so much of what i was doing you know when i was displaying bpd or cptsd behaviors for me i no longer even know nor care what my formal diagnosis is because I just, the more and more I tried to like cling and find out which one exactly is it, I just had to start thinking about myself as a holistic person and more like, what are the patterns that are keeping me stuck? It's not about like, I don't need to know exact, I understand the use cases for formal diagnoses and I know that's important. But for me, I just realized like, I need to release like seeing myself as a borderline or whatever that may be. And I just have to see myself as this individual person. And what I saw was a lot of people wanting to be not around me very much because I realized I was doing a lot of stuff that was hurting other people, but I had no idea I was doing it. And it took my partner who I'm currently with, and I've brought this up various times on the podcast, who is a very avoidant style person, very quiet. He thinks about everything before he does it. 
Um, and he's by no means perfect. And he would be the first one to say that, but he did say like, I feel emotionally abused by you. And if this doesn't change, like I, I don't, I love you. I think you mean so well. I think you have the biggest heart ever, but I'm being basically sucked into your emotional fucking vortex and it leaves no room for me to breathe. And I was so, it was the first time in my life where instead of being like, F you, you know, like if you don't love me the way I am, it was very much like, whoa, this is one of the kindest, most awesome people. And there we have it. Dog and cat fight right in the middle of the episode. Yep. 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 Cool. Oh, bless. That was that was a um an audio representation of what went on inside when my partner told me that I was emotionally abusing him. That, that had an interesting sound. It it, it sounded intense a, a bit. <laughs> it was it honestly was very fast and brutal. Like I don't even know what happened. I just hope everyone's okay. I think I saw some cat hair on the floor. We're all good here. Um but it was it was a moment. It was a lot. I And I have felt so much shame, Jace, in that moment because I thought this, and I, and part of me really wanted to go, this always happens to me. Like, woe is me. Why does this, but, but what happened to me in that moment was I felt like I had an out of body experience and I zoomed out and I was like, oh shit, it's happening again. Like this is a cycle. And if I don't break this cycle, it's not about finding the right person. You know, I, I was shedding these good people in my life because these, my unconscious that I wasn't aware of was just playing itself out in this repetitive pattern. What is your reaction to that? Oh, a, a lot of thoughts. Um, well, and you brought up, a, I had a thought earlier when you were sharing um, it kind of maybe what I would call like the, the moralizing that happens and, you know, often the emotion there is, is a, sh- a shame one and, you know, maybe contempt or criticism from the external world. Um, um, and I think that there's, so you, you brought up a really important point of these strategies, right? Where you can get lost in diagnosis and, and trying to maybe validate our experience, which is understandable. But I think there's a kind of a humanistic view of, there's a, there's a child that's developed here that has developed strategies that at one point, right, whether it's dissociate, dissociation, um, you know, control, aggression, whatever that may be, it was adaptive at some point. It helped that person survive. Yes. Now, there's a, there's a, 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 a guilty truth, meaning it is true, right? Like a guilt of you were, you were hurting somebody that you cared about. And I imagine you did not intend to hurt that person, right? But that feedback and, and someone being that you love and adore giving you some honest feedback, there's a lot of maybe initial shame that you kind of have to almost go through. But I think some of that shame is a part of the adaptive strategy. There's a lot of sorrow there. There's a lot of sadness. Of like, and so I think if we can, it's a bit of a paradox, but if we can move ourselves, patients, whoever, into a sense of, oh, at one point this was adaptive for me and it is no longer, right? And having that grieving uh, of almost appreciating the process that you're now letting go of. Um, and so that just feels like a, a paradigm shift where it can, you know, Pete Walker talks a lot about like toxic shame and being able to have compassion 
for these parts of you that helped you survive. And I, I find myself wanting to emphasize that for, well, all humanity in a way is that because it opens the door then to look at the hard truths, right? To be curious. Um, like the, and I think sometimes uh, we get so, I don't know if it's I, probably a bit of a, like a Judeo-Christian, uh, you know, Western value of responsibility and being good or bad. I'm a big um, advocate, I guess, against the use of like moral language when we talk about feelings, which it's, it's everywhere. It's in contemporary psychodynamic literature where they'll say positive and negative feelings. And I, I, I would rather use something along the lines of, uh, I mean, you could say pleasurable and painful. Yes. Um, I was just on Instagram (laughs) ranting yesterday where I even slipped where I said it's when, when negative feelings come up and I caught myself and I'm like, there is no such thing as a negative feeling. They're just, they just are like, they just happen and they happen for everyone. And I've said it once and I'll say it a hundred times. I thought it was a really profound example, right? Our, the United States was like part of a declaration of independence is like the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually so, such a toxic thing because really it's like, we really, as a, as a society in the Western world in general believe like happiness is the goal. So the Mm -hmm. moment that you be, if the moment you have a non-happy or non-positive thought, it's like, oh, I got to check myself because something's quote unquote wrong rather than accepting that that whole experience of emotion, shame, because there's even good shame, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we lose is like, just because you're having a feeling of shame doesn't mean it's bad. Sometimes it's good, but shame can be toxic. That's why there's toxic positivity and there's toxic shame. It's like, it's never good to be on one extreme. It's like, you got to be somewhere in the middle and all the feelings are just feelings. Mm. Can you explain what toxic shame is in your opinion? Because I think that that's something that people with complex trauma, it's like, that is like pivotal to understand. Yeah. So I might have a bit, hmm, I might have a bit of a, I don't know if it's unique, but I have a specific view on shame um, that I would want to distinguish it from kind of what I touched on earlier from like a something is true and there's maybe what we call like a genuine remorse and sadness about that truth. For me, shame, I, I would almost want to say shame is always toxic, at least in the way that I define it or the mm-hmm. thing in the sense that it gets organized. Shame often includes conclusions about yourself. Uh, meaning that, um, that I'm bad. I'm inadequate. I'm not good enough. I'm unworthy of connection. And I think, when you view shame that way, it's always toxic because I yes. mean, it's a bit of a black and white organization at that point, right? Like if you are inadequate, then how do you become adequate? You have to earn it, right? Like, is that, is that how you, is that you, how you become adequate? So now I think the healthy shame, right. Might be what I would call kind of a, a healthy guilt of being imperfect. Of mm-hmm. Being mm-hmm. And of having the potential to hurt people. And even if you don't intend to sometimes. Um, and so, and now that's not to say that we, uh, you know, I don't want to throw out like that there's maybe evil or that people can be manipulative and um, that, that exists. I think we can too quickly jump to, again, back to this moral framework of like, 
either that person is bad or I am yes. bad. They're inadequate. I'm inadequate. And I think it's just often more complex than that. So that's like why shame to me feels like it goes into the black and white organization, either, you know, towards myself or toward the other, which would be maybe more of a contempt or disgust. That's that's so, so freaking true. I mean, I've heard like John Bradshaw, I love, and Pete, uh, Pete Walker, I love too. And they both talk about like healthy shame, how like, you know, if you hurt someone, like it's good to feel a little bit of like that feeling that you get. That's like, oh man, I really shouldn't have done that. Um, it's it's a feeling is there for a reason because it's, it's encouraging you to kind of think uh, next time and grow. But how you categorize that is really important because I just think that it's, it's so often, and for me too, is like, instead of just letting it, me having just one moment and saying that was a mistake, humans make mistakes. And I often will label myself a mistake. I'm like, see, I always do this. Like, wow, what's wrong with me? Why would anyone want to be with me? And you're so right. Cause it's like a really, it's a, tricky balance to strike you have to like not let yourself like live in that shame for too long right if you can have the shame and and it's more of this okay this was a mistake this was um you know uh, i have remorse about this and i can you know there's a possibility for growth then i'm all for it but if it goes into these all or nothing organizations of I'm inept and will always be right, which is a bit of a kind of depressive organization. Then how do you grow from there? And that's such a common thing now, right? Like, I think, do you think part of it comes from what I'm realizing as like, for me personally, I was like a gray area. What is that? I don't know what that is. Like that was me before my recovery journey. And now my mantra every single day is trying to be like, am I seeing both sides of this? Like, how can I apply critical thinking to this? Why would that person write that article? Why would they have this viewpoint? Right. And you Mm -hmm. have to take such an active role in your own life to see all those things because our society is set up to want to get you to believe like all the way or none of the way, like it's just the way that it is. And I think that suits people just fine because people feel more comfortable in like an extreme viewpoint in the gray area is so uncomfy <laughs> for better or worse. Right. Whether I have an all or like a, an all bad perspective of myself. And again, this is where like shame or black and white thinking, even if it's kind of harsh thinking towards yourself, that can actually be more comfortable than appreciating what seems to be more true is that you're a gray person, right? Like yes. to be able to appreciate both sides, to be able to ha- hold contradictions, to be able to appreciate ambivalent feelings, mixed feelings at the same time, that can be really anxiety provoking. That can be really upsetting. So it, it for a child, and I, I just want to go back to this kind of idea of shame, shame can be very adaptive for the child. It gives them a sense that even though I'm say all bad, oh, it's all on me. I have responsibility here. And at least now I just need to change myself, right? Now that can be toxic because then it's like you have narratives that don't allow you to change. But to confront that mom or dad is this mixture of good and bad um, and, you know, the world is a mixture of good and bad. And then I don't have a safe person, you know, maybe with somebody that has like an insecure attachment or poor parenting, that can be devastating for a child, right? Like um, the all or nothing 
I mean, we all do it. The political spectrum is so polarized right now. Um, it's 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 a way to cope with the ambivalence, yes. the anxiety that we all feel. It's important for people to see, like, when we are in black and white thinking. In my perspective, that's like a a display of arrested development, right? Like so many of us are just like grown up adult babies, like literally not being able to see, we don't, but we don't know that, that like, that, that is what that is. But when, as soon as I realized that that was like me being a grown up baby, seeing it in that way, I'm so competitive with myself, but again, this works different strokes for different folks, Chase, everyone, the listeners, he's laughing. Um, uh, I, I don't like that. Like, I didn't like that. The moment that I started realizing, wow, these are, but again, it was unconscious. I didn't know about this stuff. So when it was made aware, when I made myself aware of this stuff, I was like, I don't want to, I want to have the full human experience. I don't want to be stuck in this childlike regressive state my whole entire life. There's a responsibility here and and it's a delicate, it's a delicate one. All right. Like, no matter how poorly one was parented, and this goes back to kind of your example with your uh, partner, mm. um, you bear responsibility for your actions, right? For your um, how you deal with your emotions. And then if those, if those uh, strategies and actions hurt other people. And so this kind of conviction that you're having, right? Like where you're almost being competitive with yourself, you're um, maybe, yes, this, adult baby right kind of thing <laughs> as which, you can see i don't i don't have a lot of like i just kind of put shit in like a, a term that could really be triggering i think i actually would it can sound i think the way i mean is big fucking baby <laughs> it can sound a bit infantilizing but i think there's a again <laughs> an appreciation of the context here where we don't have as much control as we would like to think because there are unconscious implicit ways that we're operating some of those ways we regress back to earlier developmental phases right so if we're being extremely yeah. all or nothing yes that's kind we call it a paranoid schizoid right um you know more cbt focused yeah. people would say very black and white often because of um say the paranoid schizoid position that we retreat into a bodily experience and that yes. maybe our dissociative, what I would call dissociative splitting and stuff that happens in order to keep ourselves armored. Mm-hmm. Um, but so just to bring that fast forward, right? Someone would say maybe what we borderline conditions, right? That it's, it's not that a person that doesn't have that diagnosis or, or those strategies can't regress to black and white thinking. Everybody can. It would be that someone diagnosed with borderline is using that strategy more often and has less access to what we would call more mature defenses or protected. Like, like the idea of like a healthy individual would be somebody that has a flexibility of use of strategies, right? Can kind of use dissociation when they need to, but not rely on it all the time, right? Um, and uh, so that it keeps uh, maybe what we could call like an optimal distance and then an optimal connection and being able to balance those two things. Whereas if somebody's operating from a kind of arrested development place, they may over rely because that's how they've survived on this kind of paranoid schizoid, black and white mm-hmm. mental representation, right? We act those things out. 
this person's bad, I'm good. This person's good, I'm bad. And that's how, that's what gets acted out because that's how you've learned to do relationships. Yep. That was certainly the case for me. What would you say is a healthy, normal time? I don't even really like the word normal, but like when would be an acceptable time just from like a developmental perspective to dissociate just so the listeners, like when may someone dissociate and it is like a protective thing and it would be not considered like maladaptive. Oh, I mean, so many examples I would say, well, what I can just speak to it abstractly and then it's maybe a specific example. Well, in war, um, mm-hmm. like, yeah, like um, anytime that, survival is literally at stake yeah there is a lot of healthy dissociation to take place right like I don't have time to think about you know um, whether let's say yanking a, a little kid's arm to save them from the ongoing truck like I need to act and so um, yep. if there is something that is very and this is where it gets tricky, though. Um, so that would be an appropriate way where survival is literally at stake. Mm-hmm. The thing for people maybe with more disorganized attachment or borderline conditions is a lot of experiences feel that way, right? So a lot of experiences can feel life or death. And so that's where you may operate out of a dissociative position, um, kind of, again, out of this sense of survival when the person that you're interacting with may not be um, an oncoming truck or somebody that's trying. Yep. Um, I think for my entire twenties, I tell this to people, like, I just feel like for most of my like late adolescence and twenties, I was in like some kind of dissociative state because like, I felt like to a certain extent, like low level where I look back and I remember so little of that, that the last probably like from ages 14 to around like 26, like I was such a chaotic, reactive, um, always really thinking that like someone was out to get me, not like the government is bugging my apartment style, but very much like I always was in, in some kind of drama and I made it so intense that I actually feel like I like put myself in like prisoner of war mentality when in reality I wasn't actually there. And I'm seeing that in even like my discord server, right. That I've started where I witness people sharing and the comments that I get on my Instagram, I see a lot of myself in those comments where it's like, people make the biggest deal out of the now what as an outside observer is not that big of a deal, right. Where like, it's like two office, two colleagues at work, like laugh. And then you're spending the rest of your day, literally being convincing yourself that they're making a joke about you. But in reality, they just saw like a funny meme. Right. And I find a lot of my listeners share those experiences, Jace, where they struggle with such intense kind of like paranoia to where they lose sense of reality because they're creating these narratives in their mind. And therefore they're kind of like missing life. And that happened for me a lot. Do you have, um, I'll interview you here. Um, yeah. Do you have a sense of compassion for yourself in, in meaning um, in the reasons that you would abuse those uh, strategies early on? You know, 
yes, because I, I say that I like, I try, that's something I'm still really trying hard with because like, I struggle a lot with self-compassion. Like I'll rationalize it away and basically think everyone else deserves it except for me. Um, which I think is pretty common. Um, but I have compassion for my younger self in those moments because and again, I have done a lot of healing work with my parents. They were doing the best they could with what with what the the resources they had. My uh, one of my parents came from probably like the, one of the, the most traumatic upbringing you could imagine. And so, but I was a highly emotional child, and mm-hmm. the it was not a good fit with my parents, like in terms of our temperament. And mm-hmm. so. I was shamed for big displays of emotion and I had to spend a lot of time in my room alone crying by myself. And I want to say something to this. Please Um, do. Please do. Well, just that. um, And it builds up this idea of appreciating something that is true with, with also, we don't have to turn it into like uh, your mom or your parent caregivers out Mm -hmm. there, listeners, right? Like are these, awful now in some some instances it may feel like incorrigible right like just like there's no excuse i like you know so i don't want to minimize that but Mm -hmm. more we could say um ongoing parent did the best they could but there was developmental trauma where their own stuff right like um you can imagine and you know the intergenerational it's not that it's necessarily heritable it's that the environments get passed on, right? So yep. if a mother gets there, you know, the mom is interacting with this child, right? That has a lot of emotions as many child children do. What's that going to do to her? It's going to trigger up her own emotions, right? She's going to get in touch with emotions that may be coming from her own difficult caregiving experiences. Now, and, and this is just uh, not to get too educational here, but like, um, you know, mothers of, uh, we could say, BPD, mothers of BPD children, or, you know, um, disorg- a lot of times it gets framed as like disorganized attachment. Um, mm-hmm. They will mismatch their child, right? The child will show distress. It was actually a BPD dad, I think, in my case. Okay. My dad my dad even admits like now he's grown a lot and he even admits like he relates a lot to BPD um, traits. So my mom, just to put it in perspective for you, for the help of this description, my mom was actually very, very withdrawn and wanted, my mom does not show big displays of emotion, except for like when they burst out of her very, so like, I'm a perfect example of disorganized attachment because I had no idea my dad would be really loving one second. And then my dad would like completely reject me if I didn't agree and send me to my room and my mom. And I would look at my mom to say, to point out, this is not right. Right. But my mom was so afraid of my dad's reactions that I was a child going, this is not right. Like, but I was being told you're the problem. Literally verbatim. My dad said to me once when I was 15, like, if it weren't for you, our family would be like completely fine. (laughs) Right. And so again, all this stuff I've talked through with him, but nonetheless, it made its mark. And I'm like a perfect example of what you're saying of like, my parents' shit became my shit. Yeah, of course. And I would even posit that all these things began even much earlier than, again, the, the verbal kind of, I mean, that's really solidifying it, right? Like when somebody mm-hmm. says directly. Literally. Um, 
But even before- He said it in many different ways growing up that didn't even have to be translated verbally, right? Like, it's like, just like you're saying it. But when I was 15, I remember being like, oh, so now you're just like saying it because I've kind of gotten the message my whole life. Totally. Um, they've done like infant observations. Um, for the li- listeners, if you want to look into some of this, Beatrice Beebe is a good um, author. Um, Lyons Ruth, uh, that's her last name, is a good author of like literal infant observation of mothers with disorganized attachment with the child. And then they can even predict with pretty high um, correspondence that the child will have, you know, um, BPD features. Um, Interesting. Can you first describe what is disorganized attachment? Oh, that's a good question too. Um, I'm, I'm full of them. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So, um, and this goes to the, uh, Maybe we can talk a little bit about the word borderline for a second, too. The the term, not to go too in-depth with the history of it, but the term started as a psychoanalytic term to capture a developmental stage in between kind of psychotic and neurotic, right? uh, These symptoms of neurosis and then symptoms of borderline, symptoms of psychosis were developmental based on, you know, a lot of, putting a lot of onus on the uh, interactions with parents. Um, and it was to capture um, where someone had was using, you know, kind of more primitive defenses, paranoid, schizoid, uh, black and white, splitting, projection, uh, projection, projective identification, these types of um, more primitive defenses, dissociation, um, but were still in touch with reality, right? Like uh, that they weren't living in the clouds, right? That they were, um, they could still kind of observe the reality of, of the situation and it was to capture that kind of middle ground um and so then when you start getting into personality disorders um, from a psychoanalytic view there's like a kind of borderline developmental phase that could apply to avoidant personality border uh, histrionic personalities narcissistic personality with the dsm i think it was the four maybe the three went started really moving towards the medical model right and dsm clusters uh or uh, dsm symptom clusters it and this is would be my critique on the development of a cptsd cluster is that i think that's missing the mark we're just starting to like look at symptoms as opposed to you know, the roots and the environment and the person and, uh, you know, what's, what's the, what's the whole, as you put it, holistic kind of picture there. Mm-hmm. Um, disorganized attachment into that. I would say uh, disorganized attachment, there's a lot of overlap between what we call disorganized attachment and what we're calling borderline kind of level of operation where you see these more um, primitive earlier, you know, primitive, a bit of a negative connotation, but an earlier kind of developmental approach to relationships where there's an approach avoidance, there's a push-pull, there's a control, maybe hostile aggression, uh, and then at the same time, a helpless kind of uh, fearful preoccupation, you know, and it, those things, they get represented unconsciously. Again, the child and the adult child doesn't maybe realize that they're doing this. It's just this internal chaotic representation. Uh, and if I have that in the early childhood with my parent, because they're not able to mirror my emotions, then I'm going to carry that with me 
and my identity, you know, um, my ability to reflect on my desires, my initiatives, what I want, it's going to be difficult because I didn't get that mirrored for me growing up, right? And so it's going to be being able to do relationships and be able to do a healthy relationship with myself. It's going to be difficult. Um, and that's, that's disorganized. I, uh, Crittenden, uh, Patricia Crittenden is a contemporary um, attachment theorist that would probably push against this disorganized classification. I think she would say disorganized is m- more, it's uh, organized in a very alternating type of way, right? Like uh, one that is disorganized often is alternating between kind of a preoccupied stance and an avoidant stance at the same time, right? Like kind of um, oscillating back and forth very rapidly, um, but it can appear disorganized. So uh, I hope that uh, answers some questions around the term borderline and disorganized attachment. It absolutely does. And I resonate a lot with the like push pull thing, right? Because for me that, um, manifests in really feeling like I want a lot of intimacy and closeness, but then when I actually get it, I'm like, oh, no, 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 I I actually don't want that. I'm feeling smothered, right? You know what I mean? And so it's like I've often experienced that push-pull in my life, and I think a lot of my previous partners would probably tell, (laughs) tell you like, what do you want? Like you say you want more, you know, love, but then when I do that, it's too much. So like, what is the happy medium? And it didn't seem to exist. And what's even scarier when you're in that situation is like not knowing yourself, like what you actually really need. Right. Like when someone asks you, I remember that was another pivotal point in my recovery or whatever process that I've been going through now as my therapist who I had kind of asked me, she's like, well, what do you need? And I was just going, uh, I don't, I have no idea. And that was a really sad realization because I felt just like, I actually have no idea what I need. And I'm still figuring that out. I think like, and that's part of the reason why I'm doing the podcast, right. Is like, and talking to all these people that inspire me and uh, it's like, do you find that a lot with clients? Is that something common? Like that someone may not even know what they need? Yes. uh, 100%. And to, to make it about early childhood uh, real quickly again, um, and then we'll fast forward to, to maybe clients experiences. Parents can be over involved and under involved, right? Like, uh, so a child may be expressing um, like, hey, I need some distance, and a dissociative mother uh, who maybe needs her own connection becomes over-involved, right? And so uh, the child may have a sense of, like, I can't exist right now, right? Like, uh, maybe a fear of uh, being devoured is the one way it gets described. But then if the mother is under-involved, then it's like, I'm going to die. I don't have, like, right? And then there's the fear of abandonment at that point. But both of those things, right? It's like a contradictory, like, this person that I need to have a secure sense with, right? A, a secure distance with is not, is not able to provide that for me. So both of the needs for separation and closeness get organized in this very chaotic way that then, yes, what, what do I need, right? Like the, the parent um, did not mirror back that. They did not mirror back your anger, uh, your initiative, your... One, I think, and this is big and kind of mentalization based 
is a focus on curiosity. And I think it's a bit twofold. It helps with just kind of setting the frame of what we're going to do and exploring, but it also puts the emphasis on the patient or client's experience, right? Like what's going on for you? Is it growing up? It was what was what was communicated consciously and unconsciously um, was it's what's going on for mom or dad. Um, yeah. And the, that's how the baby, that's how they adapted. It's all right. What's, what's going on for mom? What's her facial cues, right? Like what's going on for dad? What's he doing? And You're so- describing literally like me, because that, that is why now I know where mm-hmm. now, and these are things like, you're, you're painting it so perfectly because those things kept me quote unquote alive when I was young. Right. In my perception, like no, what, no matter what, my parents weren't going to let me die. They weren't like that neglectful, but in my own mind as a child, like I was thinking, okay, this is what I have to do to like get their attention. And now when I am a grown ass woman on a meeting, a zoom call, like I'm hyper analyzing everybody's facial expression. So if I, even like as a manager, I'm sharing something that's just like valid feedback with my employees. I, if I see her face, face just like subtly change, I'm like thinking she hates me and she's mad or like, I'm going to change what I actually need to say or deliver because of that. Or if my partner's on the couch and I'm telling him something about my day and he just kind of like looks down, mm-hmm. I'm like, what, why did you look down? Do you, well, well, you know what I mean? Like literally looking at these tiny things. And when I was young, that was something that was adaptive. And now it is something as I'm older that is maladaptive. Yes. So uh, I want to challenge you a little bit here. On I like it. <laughs> well, it, it's just an it's a thing that adults do, right? It's not yeah. what Molly does. It's okay. I I actually love this because this is what helps. This is what helps. This and Pete Walker talks about it as well, right? Like this idea will minimize the child's experience from our own adultified perspective of what we want. And so like you said something and you were saying it passively, I'm just being playful with you, but like it wasn't literally like, No, I appreciate this is important. (laughs) It wasn't literally like the life or death for me. Right. But tell that to your three-year-old. Like, yes, it was like, if mom's not there, that's life or death. So experientially, that's a huge fucking deal. That's, that's yeah. big. Um, so that's such like, a good point. Yeah. Like effectively, right. Emotionally we get, because we have higher order cognitive capacities when we get into adulthood, you know, so much of my work with whatever patient I'm treating is to appreciate emotionally what's the unconscious kind of procedures that are taking place. And that we tend to now some of that is healthy, right? Like organizing things, being humorous about them. Yeah, like do that. But also appreciate emotionally what was going on there and that what there may be a lot of grief and anger that's still here that may be kind of dissociated, pushed off at times. Oh my God, to put it in like, yes, facts, <laughs> because <laughs> uh, what you're saying is so important. And it's interesting because my therapist, like Bev, <laughs> she's great. Um, I'm actually no longer in therapy because we decided like that I kind of was like, therapizing the shit out of myself through this podcast. Like she's like, I think we got it. Um, but she's always there if I need her, but she all often did call me on those types of things of saying, you know, like, okay, like 
but where is your compassion for little Molly that was going through that moment? You know, and I've told this story on the podcast before, but for listeners who may have not listened to that episode, Jace often, like the thing that I remember most with my mom was, and it's just how my mom is wired. My mom is not an, an extremely touchy feely person. And she actually is like, kind of like squigged out by too much physical contact. And that's her own thing. Um, my mom, what my mom did do is like, if I had a project, she would stay up all night, you know, helping me with my project. She just showed love in a different way. Um, but I am a person who is like physical touch and also like all kids need that, you know, like that's like something that like, I think most kids probably do need an element of like that physical touch. But again, you can call me on that if I'm assuming too. But what I do profoundly remember is like, as a child trying to cuddle my mom and my mom being like, Oh, don't, don't, you know, I don't want that. And she would push me off. And I remember like touching her fingernail and all I could do was like stroke her fingernail because that's all she would like actually be able to handle. Like that's a memory I have so profoundly in my mind. And, uh, it gets me like emotional every time I talk about it. Um, I feel emotional. (laughs) Yeah. Like, and so now I know that like, I will have moments where I'm just with my partner and like, he's not by himself on the couch. And I'm like, can I just like, I just like want to be cuddled, except I'm scared to go ask for that because growing up I was rejected in that. And so it's like, it's so hard. Like that's the kind of like blowback that those things have on you as a, as an adult. Well, and can you see where that would make you question your needs and desires for that affection and and the emotions behind those needs, like yep. it creates self doubt. It creates yeah. toxic shame. Mm-hmm. Like the way I think it's worth mentioning, just because of the way um, that you described some of your interactions with parents. Um, like the number one way that a person with BPD would describe mother would be as like unloving and neglectful. Like that yep. would be, and then for dad, uh, somewhat ironically. Um, would be like active and rejecting. So uh, maybe that you'll experience that as valid. Like textbook. (laughs) Yeah, pretty Uh, much. There are other, there are other descriptors, but those are kind of the ones that rise to the top as like the primary. Um, But you can see where like, you know, I want to go back to this kind of uh, exterior, like being able to hypervigilant or noticing nonverbal, like how important that's going to become when there's an, maybe an inability to look inward, right? Like, because parent is struggling to look inward at you. So now you're, you have to go by what you can go by. You're not being, you're not able to observe your internal desires, right? Because the parent's not mirroring that for you. And you need the parent to mirror that for you in order to do that. So now it's like, I'm going to go with what I have, right? Like, so the, uh, um, and maybe we can talk a little bit about mentalizing, um, a profile of mentalizing or what even mentalizing is, but a profile for someone who has BPD um, and a hallmark of that on the spectrum of say internal or interior mm-hmm. mentalizing and external or exterior mentalizing is that people with BPD tend to be on the external exterior focus because they fucking had to be. That's how they Yeah. yeah it's so true. Is from nonverbal, from facial expressions, from, 
action. And then they draw strong conclusions about that, right? Like strong yeah. conclusions about what that means for that person and what that means for them. Which in childhood, like, I guess, like those conclusions were often kind of right, even though they like, you know, because yeah. here's the thing, my parents now have so much shame and regret because like, I've had huge talks with them in the last year since my like recovery journey kind of really started in earnest and they admitted to all this, they, they acknowledge it. And also I feel so blessed to actually have been able to have that interaction with my parents because that's rare. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, like I'm still dealing with the, the effects of, of all of that stuff. And, um, but it's so important to look at these things and have an honest, uh, look about how it affected us. And I mean, I'm still unwinding the, the effects and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's so hard. It's really hard because the thing is like, my parents didn't intend that they were wrapped up in their own trauma. And that's like why the whole generational trauma thing exists because it just keeps getting passed on. And unless we kind of acknowledge and break that cycle, like it never really ends. Really raises the question of like, is it ever too late to have uh, not, not a, to have some form of spectrum of repair like, um, Mm -hmm no matter how old one is, right? Like I think children tend to be very forgiving initially. Now as patterns emerge, right? It's like, all right, well, this is how it is. And then the, I would say they get the patterns get more solidified as we get older. But I mean, I can imagine, and I know some of the work that I do at the residential, like involving family in some of these more developmental types of stuff, if they can be involved and they want to be involved, right? Like it's huge. I mean, it's, it's huge. huge to say, Huge. We had an impact on, I mean, so, so much of it can be perpetuated when say you have a, you know, a narcissistically oriented father or something that just cannot tolerate that they've had a harsh impact on you. Like they just, and that just perpetuates it, right? It's like denial, uh, continued neglect, right? You're saying, Hey, you hurt me. And they're saying, no, I didn't. It's like, it just compounds it. But if you, even as maybe a, you know, a, it does 30 year old adult if you have a six-year-old parent it's like fuck like damn i did i I see that i hurt you or i see that you're still hurting (laughs) like that can Mm -hmm. be out huge and that's what happened for me and don't get me wrong i had a couple it took a few conversations obviously to get there Mm -hmm. and it was almost me i had to say to them because I approached my parents the first conversation where I basically just came unglued when they visited me once and I just ended up everything kind of poured out. Like I screamed everything at them and, and there was a lot of defensiveness, a lot of denial. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was a, it was a a little bit of a breakthrough, but then it took me kind of having before the last conversation I had with them, I just said, I just need you to listen. I need you. I'm not blaming you. I don't think you meant to do any of this. I know you love me because I think that they, they so deeply, they know in their heart that they love me and they would do anything for me. Right. Like, cause if I was in a sticky spot, my parents would be there for me no matter what, like my parents aren't millionaires, but my parents would like remortgage their home to make sure that I was okay. Like they would do anything. So anything that points out to them, to that, like them, that they have to like hold the fact that they're like a bad parent it was rough. And so I had to kind of tell them like, look, 
I love you. I don't think you're a horrible parent. I don't think like you failed. Like there's a lot of me, a lot of my positive traits I got from my parents, you Mm -hmm. know, that, that, that are great things about me, but I need them to acknowledge and admit and validate to me that what I witnessed growing up was like a really codependent, emotionally abusive relationship that I, me and my sister kind of were just thrust into and had to somehow develop and kind of raise ourselves a little bit from just like an emotional growth standpoint. We had no frame of reference and I wanted them to hold that reality. And then when they did that, they did. And that was so profoundly healing for me. It allowed me to get to another stage of my recovery. It really helped. Can we talk about anger a little bit? Yes. Because, I mean, this is just it's making me think of. Um, now, sometimes parents won't do what you're describing, right? And then it becomes the hope becomes in some type of relational acknowledgement um, whether it's with a therapist, with a community of support, um, online, <laughs> you know, podcast, whatever, books, uh, as Pete Walker will say, but some type of relational, Bonnie V would say mentalizing environment. But that has to include an acknowledgement of anger. And I think yeah. some, the reason I'm so passionate about this is um, therapists, you know, a most therapists would have what I would call like a depressively organized personality, which means they're sensitive to shame. They're sensitive to not feel like they're doing enough, right? Like mm-hmm. their own codependent dynamics can come out. And so, and I think this is why there's a long history of maybe um, poor treatment of people from a psychoanalytic approach even, right? Like, uh, cause the old school is kind of blank slate, don't interact, right? Like kind of withholding, uh, you know, withdrawn. And uh, the relational movement and psychodynamic and psychoanalytic thought has been, hey, be more active, be more present. So like somebody that is more relational and trained in mentalization-based treatment, you're more active and you have to be okay with your anger, right? Like, so if you haven't done your work around your anger, then you're going to, you're going to feel ashamed of your anger and then you're going to act that shame out towards person, you know, maybe with BPD that is very in touch with their anger in a, maybe an aggressive or an externalizing way, but then it becomes often kind of like a judgmental way. And, and now you're not containing it and, you know, enactments and ruptures without repair happen. So we, we therapists need, and this is, yeah, just get in touch I had my own parental upbringing that I think got that I got in touch with my anger, and so I may be a little bit more in touch mm-hmm. with my anger than most parents. <laughs> but it's so <laughs> if you're gonna anger yeah. is a valid emotion that needs yes. expression in healthy and effective and appropriate ways. It's not something that needs to be disavowed and neglected. So you're going to love this. I played, I think, on like a. It was an episode a while back, but. You know, John Bradshaw had those like, uh, I found on YouTube in the archives, archives, each of them probably have like 50 views. I was one of 50 people that viewed that they were uploaded in like 2006. I was like, wow, this is some niche content right here. I'm going to have to send them to you. I think you'd appreciate them, but they're like, 
old things from what looks like the 90s or late 80s of John Bradshaw doing anger work with people, okay? And he basically sits the teddy bear on there. And I think he got made fun of and SNL skits were made about this like in the 90s of like, yell your anger, you know, like they made fun of it a lot. People made fun of it. But I think that's a shame because watching that, like I watched a woman in this John Bradshaw and I played the full clip on my podcast. Like it was like five minutes of this woman where he has, like, he sits the teddy bear down on the chair and he's like, I want you to talk to her. Like she's your mom, like tell her what you need from her. And the like visceral anger that came out at first, she started off just kind of like, I need you to do this. Like, and John was like, no, like, how do you really feel? And like, and by the end of like the five minute clip, this woman was like screaming and her screams, like I was sobbing, like watching it because I felt like it was literally touching my soul. And then I realized I need to start doing that. And so I did it on my own. I did it out in my car. Like I brought a pillow out in my car and I really just like screamed into it. Like until it like, till I was really physically tired from screaming. And then I realized, oh my God, I, I had a lot of that built up that I actually didn't even realize as a kid, I screamed all the time. My mom says like, I have a raspy voice because I screamed everything. I screamed and I was sad, happy. I was very loud. But as an adult, I've learned, you know, society has conditioned me to be more. And so I let my anger out in more passive aggressive ways now. And like in best, thank you, yours truly emails at corporate America. And now I'm like, I realized whoa, I have so much of this anger and I couldn't agree with you more that like, I think anger work is probably the most important thing for people, period. Yeah. Well, I would, I would add anger and grief. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But a lot of times they go hand in hand, don't they? Absolutely. Yes. So anger is one of those emotions. And again, I think it's somewhat based on kind of a lot of therapists having this depressive organization where it gets the defensive emotion, right? Like everything, there's always something under anger. And now any emotion can be used defensively, right? Like in the way that we express it, I think uh, a sad weepiness, right? Like, Oh, I'm helpless can actually be defensive and can, um, can defend against a more genuine uh, kind of, anger and entitlement and I, you know, I deserve to be treated with respect or something. Um, And so this idea of anger always being defensive or primarily being defensive. Yeah, I'm a big proponent of anger can be very healthy. And usually there's some grief alongside it. I wouldn't even say underneath it, just alongside. Yeah, it's like attached. They're like holding hands. They're besties. Yeah, there needs to be a word <laughs> for it. I'm not, uh, yeah, like a mad, sad kind of uh, word, but yes, um, so much of the Granger. Anger. It's Granger. I just made that up. Great. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it needs to be acknowledged and worked through. So, because it wasn't acknowledged and worked through early on. And mm. one way to even think about a healthy anger. It's a sense of self-worth, right? A sense of self-esteem, a sense of entitlement yes. that like I deserve to be treated in a way that is consistent with my values as a human that has inherent worth and I don't have to earn it, right? Like that's a healthy anger to me. Um, yes. So if we don't acknowledge that, just, that feels very sad to me. 
Um, and that's God, not, that's so true. That's not to, um, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of grief in the sense that there's a lot of limitation out there, right? People can't meet our needs perfectly. We're imperfect. They're imperfect. Nobody's a perfect fit. So there's going to be grief associated. Yep. People change over time, right? In yeah. relationships. So you're grieving the projection of who you thought this person was, was going to be who you predicted. There's a grief always. And so yeah. I'm a, those two emotions in particular, yes, are extremely important to have acknowledged in the therapy relationship or in the, real, um, we'll say, healing relational context, right? To speak to it more broadly. So that's so, so powerful. I encourage everyone to just like, all my listeners are like, they love going on their like research spirals like I do. So I'll put the link to that John Bradshaw clip in the show notes. And also I just encourage you to like Google yourself into a hole about anger and grief work because it will only benefit you. It's so powerful. And so many of us deny our anger and grief and that I think for me, I denied my anger and grief into like numbness. And that's when I felt those feelings of numbness and emptiness that they say are chronic feelings of emptiness with BPD. And -hmm. I'll tell you when I post about things, when I post about emptiness, it's like a swell of reactions from the people that follow me because so many people feel chronically empty. And I really do believe it's because they've like cut off their anger. They've cut off their grief. Like I think that for me, at least actually I'm speaking on behalf of a lot of people. For me, once I did the anger work, I started feeling less empty because I felt like I was kind of letting all of my emotion. It's like, I felt like it was like when you go into an old house and you turn on a faucet, you kind of have to let it run for a while before the water like runs clear. Like I needed to get out all of that anger and grief in order to kind of start actually experiencing the full range of my emotions again. Yeah, 100%. Well, and again, it, it, it's so understandable that there would be um, experiences that we would describe as empty or um, numb or dissociated when they're the early environment with the, the early relationship with the caregivers is so absent and neglectful, right? Like, yes. where do you go? Yeah. It's, it's so true. I just literally remember I've, I've, self, you deny your experience. You deny, like, if I feel angry, which all children are going to feel angry. Yeah. I don't have somebody to help me process it. Then I'm going to push that shit away. Yep. Deny it. And then empty. <laughs> it's so freaking true. And again, like I'm just bringing stuff up to you that I've already brought up, but it's just because it's so relevant to our conversation. But I was the queen of like, as a child, like I was told, go to your room. Right. And like, do be done with that. And that was horrible um, for me. And I had to go to bed. I had a lot of existential dread as a child, like very young, I would say like thoughts of death and dying from a very young age because of like my Catholic upbringing and talk of hell. And I was like, wait a minute, what's hell? And if I lie, I go there and like, wait a minute, hold on. I've lied a lot. So I'm fucked. And like, uh Oh, those kind of thoughts as a little kid. And that was like so dramatic. And my parents were very much like, what are you having those thoughts about? Don't think about that. And so immediately, what did I get? Something's wrong with you. And so Jace, my main coping mechanism from being little 
it was a running joke in my family that I always had um, a story tape, like uh, like back. Yeah, yes, I yes, every all Gen Z people, I had literally tapes that I listened to. Um, <laughs> but like, I listened to books on tape, and then it became like literally all the way up until I was a teenager. I like the Harry Potter books, like I had them on CD. I couldn't go to sleep without talking because I had to drown out like my terrifying thoughts. And my mom and dad laughed all growing up where they were like, Molly always like, turn my tape over, turn my tape over was like the refrain in my house because I just wanted someone like I needed to hear voices so that I didn't have to hear my thoughts. And my parents still to that, like, I don't think they realized the darkness of what I was going through in those moments. And I don't think it sounds like they didn't have the capacity to appreciate. No. Um, I want to mention, uh, I think it's uh, Peter Feige's definition of trauma because it just seems very pertinent to something you're describing here. Like often when we think of trauma, we think of something more active, which um, again, yeah, sexual abuse or abuse. It's like the big T, little T trauma, right? Like, yes, but I, but I would even say, well, maybe it's a mixture of those two things in the Mm -hmm. sense that it can be both where, he describes trauma as when there's adversity, which maybe it's a big T adversity or a small T continued adversity, but the traumatic part of that or the primary trauma and Pete Walker kind of says this as well, is that there's no sense of having an opportunity to connect with the emotional experience, right? Like it's, I get hit and then I don't have anyone to take my pain to. Literally. I I don't have, it's the neglect. It's, I have an experience, right? I'm having an, embodied mental experience and nowhere there's nowhere to take it I'm alone in it that's the perfect description of my entire childhood like literally nail on the head like and so for those of my listeners that are going yes yes that's me is that trauma that's how that's how Peter Fonagy would would define Mm -hmm. it now I mean yeah, to define trauma. Um, Again, think, another huge. <laughs> well, and maybe there's a note for the people out there that, um, you know, follow a lot of like Instagram accounts. There's, it's like, there's like an ongoing mental health debate, right? Of like, I think there's been a movement towards appreciating the word trauma, probably more loosely defined as anything experiential that happens, right? Like a kind of a social influences to move away from like the medical model that the problem is within you. It's, you know, mm-hmm. brain chemistry, the chemical imbalance myth that I will emphasize there. But myth. Uh, yes, myth. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, it, but if we define trauma as everything, right, then trauma kind of loses its meaning there a little bit. Um, so I think, and I think I, I have a, yeah, I do have a, post on that that I would view trauma we could view it as on like a spectrum of um and just to allow for some nuance there right like there's yeah maybe more than big t trauma that we would maybe more define in clinical terms or in the dsm but then there's a lot of things that need to be appreciated whether you call it small t trauma adversity uh, developmental trauma whatever I actually don't really care well do I care it needs to be appreciated it needs to be appreciated and we need to have words and language to describe it. You know, what's coming up for me as you're saying that is like, for me, what I'm describing to you, like I know for a fact, based upon going through my childhood, like what I experienced, whether or not it was intentional or not, isn't important. It was prolonged 
and repeated and chronic emotional neglect, like at a fucking intense scale, like through my entire childhood. That sounds traumatic. That sounds like it meets criteria for trauma. Right? And it's like- just like when they say you have BPD, right? If you meet, if you meet X amount of these traits and it's pervasive and like, and it affects your ability, right. To be able to like you can tell my, my lack of credentials is showing here, but it basically has to be something that that's like, for example, chronic feelings of emptiness is one of the criteria for BPD. Right. I think everyone feels empty sometimes. It's like, that's part of the human experience, but is it chronic? Is it like all the time? Is it really affecting your ability to work and have relationships and da da da? And that's how I see trauma for myself. No parent is going to be able to be there every single second of the day for their kid. Every kid's going to cry themselves to sleep probably at one point in their life. But for me, that was like an everyday thing. And another good example is, you know, when I was 15, I endured some serious. All right. So sorry to cut you off. I know I'm sure you were enjoying the conversation, but that is the end of part one of my interview with Jace. And we are just warming up in this conversation. We carry on for another hour. And because of that, I wanted to break this episode up into two. On the next episode, we dive into my experience with bullying in junior high while also navigating emotional neglect at home. We talk about conflict and how to navigate this in our intimate and family relationships. We dive into the concept of self-awareness and how it's different to self-absorption or being self-centered. We also talk about learning to capture and tune into our complicated emotions by checking in with our bodies. Did you know that there are six core emotions, anger, sadness, and fear, our painful emotions, and curiosity, love, and joy? Our pleasurable emotions. I often found that I had a hard time labeling my feelings, and on the next episode, Jace gives me some powerful strategies to improve my relationship with my feelings. So if that sounds interesting to you, tune in next time for part two of my interview with Dr. Jace Long. Until next time, have a great week. All right, you messy, amazing, emotional, fabulous human beings doing this life thing. That is it for today's episode. I want to thank you so much for listening because out of all the millions, billions of podcasts in the world, you chose to listen to mine. And that means a lot to me. And if you listen this far, I know you never want to miss a new episode. So to make sure that doesn't happen, click follow in your podcast player of choice and you will be alerted every time I drop a new one. To help me grow and help the podcast reach as many people as possible, go ahead and leave an honest rating and review. Not only that, I love to hear your feedback, so please share it with me. I read every single review and you just might hear it read out loud on the podcast. To connect with me directly, follow me on social media and keep up with all the new updates. You can find that all at backfromtheborderline.com. And as always, any articles, resources, or other helpful information you've heard today can be found in the description of this podcast episode. So don't forget to check out the show notes. And until we meet again, 
remember, life is a circle, a cycle, a process. Separation, initiation, return. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon book list recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.